This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the fifth episode of season five. I hope you all managed to check out episode four last week, focusing on the life and crimes of Welsh child murderer Harold Jones. The case suggester Alex Strange got in touch to let me know that my pronunciations were pretty much spot on and that I absolutely nailed the pronunciation of Blind Eye Gwent. Cheers, Alex. I wasn't sure I'd got that right because it doesn't look like Blind Eye, B-L-A-E-N-A-U, but hey, that's the Welsh language for you. As always, let's break the ice a little bit before we get into this week's episode. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. Here is this week's Dad Fact. Start each day with a workout. Not only does morning exercise help boost your metabolism, but studies show that you are more likely to stick to a fitness routine if you schedule it for first thing in the morning. That is great advice because when you wake up and you go to work, you come home or you're working from home, you've got a long day, you've got kids, by the time you settle down at 8, 9 o'clock, the last thing you want to do is go to the gym, innit? You get up in the morning, starts you off for the day, and the only hard thing about that, though, is getting up. Jesus Christ, it's hard to get up, especially when the clocks go back and it's dark on a morning. The second and final opening icebreaker segment is this. The Serial Killer's Book of Haiku. Hi-ya! Here is this week's haiku. Head hacked in half. Blood and brain splatter the wall, snarling, satisfaction. And it's a lovely image, hope you can see that, of like a skull, but spray painting in blood or something. Very creepy. A haiku, if you don't know by now, is a Japanese poem made up of 17 syllables in three lines of five, seven and five. It's also meant to be read in one breath. There is a link to the Serial Killers book of Haiku 2 by Rose Bundy, where I get these from. It's in the episode description if you're interested in buying it. With my intro waffle complete, let's get into this week's episode. This case was suggested via email by listener Zoe Ward, and we're back in my home county of West Yorkshire this week. Within West Yorkshire, our story takes place in the cathedral city of Wakefield. Here are five quickfire facts about Wakefield. Number one, HMP Wakefield is a high security prison for men located at Love Lane in the middle of the city. Dating back to 1594, it's nicknamed the Monster Mansion due to having housed numerous high profile inmates, several of whom's stories I've covered. Robert Maudsley, Colin Ireland, Robert Black, They've all had the stories told on British murders, and serial rapist Reinhard Sinaga had his story told by me on Killer Stories. Dr. Death Harold Shipman hanged himself at HMP Wakefield on January 13th, 2004, 
one of the most prolific serial killers ever. Number two, on December 30th, 1460, the Battle of Wakefield, a major battle of the Wars of the Roses, took place in Sandal Magna, a suburb of Wakefield. It's estimated anywhere between 700 and 2,500 Yorkists were killed during the battle, as well as 200 Lancastrians. Number three, Wakefield Cathedral, aka the Cathedral Church of All Saints, is a Grade 1 listed building that's thought to date back to the 14th century. Having said that, the Domesday Book of 1086 mentions a church in Wakefield, so it may date back even further. Number four, in the Middle Ages, Wakefield was known as the Merry City. And number five, two children's nursery rhymes are thought to have Wakefield connections. Here We Go Round the Mulberry Bush is thought to have originated with female prisoners at HMP Wakefield, and the Grand Old Duke of York is thought to relate to the aforementioned Battle of Wakefield. The third Duke of York, Richard Plantagenet, I think that's how you say it, it's probably wrong, either died in the battle or was captured and executed shortly after. It was tough to pick those facts this week, I must admit. Wakefield has such a compelling history. With a population of 99,251, according to the 2011 census, Wakefield is where the tragic events of this week's story took place. The villain this week is named Christopher John Farrow. Originally from Cookridge in Leeds, Christopher Farrow was born in 1961. Now, as with a lot of the cases I cover, there's practically zero information out there regarding his background and early life. One thing I discovered, though, is that Christopher reportedly walks with a very prominent limp. That physical difficulty has been an ever-present part of Christopher's daily life since 1978. It was in that year, when he was 17, that Christopher was in a motorcycle accident. He'd gone to father three children... And in 1994, the year in which this story's events take place, he lived alone. Details of his personal life indicate he did have a partner. Her name wasn't mentioned in any of my sources, but they lived in separate houses. Not just separate houses, they lived in different cities. Christopher lived in his home city of Leeds, and his partner allegedly lived in Bradford. The cities are only 12 miles apart, however, and they share the aptly named Leeds-Bradford Airport. That about does it for Christopher's background, so let me now introduce the unfortunate target of this week's villain. In early 1994, 51-year-old divorcee Wendy Speaks lived on her own in an end-terraced house on Balm Lane. Opposite Wendy's house of 11 years was, and as far as I can tell still is, a factory owned by Bezier Creative Printers. My reason for mentioning that will become clear later in the story. As I do with all my cases, I had a little check on Google Maps, a little bit of a spy with the yellow man, in an attempt to get my bearings. Frustratingly, the street view for Barn Lane was last updated in July 2008. Since then, a pub across the road from the factory named The Cliff Tree appears to have since closed. There was a house next to the pub, although it's likely the landlords lived there. A bit further down the road is another set of terraced houses, so logically the end one there is probably where Wendy lived. For work, Wendy was a receptionist for a local marketing company. She had two adult daughters named Leah and Tracy, the latter of which lived in southern England after marrying her husband in September 1993. Wendy gave a poetic speech at the wedding which epitomised the strong relationship she held with both of her daughters. The Three Musketeers was the collective nickname Wendy gave her daughters and her. 
She did, of course, have a number of friends in her life, but she often preferred to just keep herself to herself. Her private life was just that, private. A woman of routine, Wendy's days typically revolved around work and followed the same format. After waking up and getting ready, she'd make her way to the nearest bus stop, which arrived at around 8.30am each workday morning. It's unclear as to whether the nearest bus stop was actually on a side street or whether Wendy just walked to Wakefield bus station because that was less than a mile away from her house. That routine was followed as it always was on the morning of March 15th, 1994. Once on the bus, Wendy was anticipating the conversation she was going to have with her manager later that day. She'd made the decision to move away from Wakefield, possibly due to her daughters living in other cities in different areas of England. She'd prepared a handwritten notice that she would hand in that afternoon. Ever the professional, after arriving at work, Wendy got on with her daily tasks. Meanwhile, a 24-year-old woman named Julie Smith was about to make her own way to work. Wendy didn't know Julie, but the two women lived less than a mile away from each other. Julie was waiting for her bus to arrive at around 9.30am that same morning. As she waited, she noticed a man walking towards the bus stop. He was staring at her intently. After walking past Julie at an uncomfortably close distance, the strange man stopped a few yards away and started shiftily looking around. The bus arrived shortly after and Julie quickly boarded it. The stranger didn't get on the bus, but it didn't stop Julie from feeling incredibly uneasy. Fast forward to the end of the working day on March 15th. Julie Smith had hopped on a bus after finishing work and got off at the same stop she'd got on at that morning. Unbeknownst to her, the strange man she'd encountered that morning was stood exactly where she'd left him. It was as if he knew Julie's schedule and was waiting for her to get home from work. One witness recalls seeing a young lady walk past her window with a suspicious-looking man watching her from across the road. The young lady in question was Julie, one of the witness's neighbours. Soon after Julie arrived at her home, she heard a knock on the front door. With no benefit of a peephole, she opened the door and was greeted by a rather ordinary-looking man. He was of average height, with brown eyes and a receding brown hairline. Julie estimated he was between 35 and 45 years old. It was the man from the bus stop. He'd been stalking Julie and followed her home. The stranger, who spoke with a Yorkshire accent, explained that he'd been in the area for a couple of hours and needed to use a phone. Julie, of course, knew that was bollocks, as she'd seen him many hours previously. Bravely, Julie explained to the man that he could not come in and use her phone and proceeded to slam the door in his face. She didn't know it yet, but her actions likely saved her life that night. Rewinding just a touch, Wendy had handed her notice in at work and her manager wished her all the best in her future endeavours. After walking to her bus stop, she hopped on a bus that took her back to Wakefield Town Centre. It arrived at Wakefield Bus Station at 6pm and Wendy walked the short distance home. Fifteen minutes later, Wendy heard a knock at the door. This was most unusual as she rarely had unannounced visits from her friends. It couldn't have been her daughters as they lived down south and certainly would have called ahead. Upon opening her front door, she was greeted by the sight of a man she didn't recognise. This chain of events was confirmed by a witness working over the road at Bezier Creative Printers. He was close to finishing his shift at 6.15pm and happened to notice a man speaking to the lady who lived in a house opposite the factory. 
He said this seemed peculiar as he believed the woman lived alone and rarely had any male callers. The factory worker was briefly called away to the printing machines and upon his return to the window, spotted the male figure leaving the woman's house alone. Using a bit of common sense, it's likely the male figure, assuming it's the same person who tried to trick his way into Julie Smith's house, used a similar routine with Wendy. We are unable to confirm exactly what the interaction was that evening because sadly, Wendy wasn't as lucky as Julie. The following day, March 16th, 1994, Wendy didn't show up for work. Even though she'd handed in a notice a day earlier, it was extremely out of character for her to miss work, even more so without informing anyone. A couple of her worried work friends decided to pop round later that day to check up on her. What they discovered was truly horrific. Wendy was lying in a pool of what appeared to be her own blood at the foot of her bed. The police were called and they soon painted a picture of what appeared to have happened. Wendy had been sexually assaulted by an unknown assailant before being stabbed a total of nine times in her back, shoulders and neck. When analysing the crime scene, officers found a shoe cupboard that had been disturbed as if someone was frantically looking for a specific pair of shoes and was unable to find them. Within Wendy's bedroom, a pair of black stiletto shoes had been placed on her bedside table. Wendy was also wearing a pair of blue mule shoes, last manufactured in 1988 by R.P. Ellen of Oxford Street. The shoes did not belong to Wendy. Therefore, her killer must have brought them to her house with the intention of placing them on his victim's feet before sexually assaulting and murdering her. The police also found a pair of black stockings that had a loop tied at the end of each one. They don't appear to have been used during the attack, but the loops were a size similar to that of handcuffs. It's thought the killer may have brought them with the intention of using them to bind Wendy to something, such as her bed. A large-scale murder investigation was launched by West Yorkshire Police, and over 5,000 men were DNA tested in an attempt to find Wendy's killer. No positive matches were returned. The next move the police made was to appeal to the public for any information by having a reenactment of the crime be shown on the legendary British TV show Crime Watch. Within the appeal, an officer explained that the blue mule shoes found at the crime scene had been purchased from a nearby charity shop a few days earlier on March 12, 1994. The shop assistant who sold the shoes recalls them being purchased by a man who'd asked what size the shoes were. Unsure as to the size due to the lack of a label, the shop assistant was then asked to try the shoes on by the customer. There were a couple of sizes too small, so the shop assistant, a size 7, surmised they were likely a size 5. Satisfied, the customer purchased the shoes and was on his way. You can probably understand by now that this individual was clearly a shoe fetishist. Some media outlets even refer to the murder of Wendy Speaks as the shoe fetish murder, with her killer being dubbed the shoe fetish killer. The Crime Watch appeal also highlighted that a Candlewick bedspread rag was found at the scene. Several Wakefield businesses cut these bedspreads into rags similar to the one found at Wendy's house. As with the DNA testing, nothing of note came through on the back of the Crime Watch appeal, and as a result, the case went cold and remained unsolved for the next six years. Before we get there though, let's briefly jump back across to Christopher Farrow's timeline. In June 1996, Christopher was arrested for drunk driving. 
Details of the exact offence and any subsequent fine or sentence aren't clear, but the crucial thing about the arrest was that Christopher was made to give over his fingerprints. They were subsequently added to the UK National DNA Database, which was set up a year earlier in 1995. The story will continue after these quick messages. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. And now, back to the story. We've set up the entire story now, so let's put the pieces together. In March 2000, a full six years after Wendy Speaks was murdered, searches were being done on unsolved crimes due to recent advancements in computer technology. Unexpectedly, a partial print found at Wendy's house on the front door handle now had a match. The fingerprint belonged to 39-year-old Christopher John Farrow. Further tests were done on blood from the crime scene, and Christopher Farrow's DNA was found within the blood samples, and that further strengthened his link to the murder. He was swiftly arrested and charged with the rape, buggery, and murder of Wendy Speaks. Christopher pleaded guilty to each charge, as well as the attempted burglary with the intention of raping Julie Smith. The strange man who had stalked Julie on March 15th turned out to have been Christopher Farrow. Upon failing to attack Julie, he turned his attention to Wendy. Christopher said, I just saw her get off a bus as I was getting off another bus. I had been thinking how crap my life was. My sex life was absolute zero and I had a lot of upset and anger towards my girlfriend. I decided to do something that day to someone. I just wanted someone to suffer the same way as I was feeling. What a terrifying statement. It was also revealed that the black stilettos had been placed on Wendy's bedside table by Christopher because he liked looking at shoes whilst having sex. During the trial in late 2000, prosecutor Robert Smith QC said, The footwear was intended to play some specific role for the purposes of arousal. This man was sexually aroused by ladies' shoes. Mr Justice Morland handed Christopher Farrow a life sentence on November 14, 2000 for the murder of Wendy Speaks, with a minimum term to serve of 18 years. On top of that, Judge Morland handed Christopher a 14-year sentence for rape, a 14-year sentence for buggery, and a 4-year sentence for attempting to burgle and rape Julie Smith. Each of the sentences handed down was set to run concurrently. Perhaps I'm being naive, but I don't understand why separate sentences are handed down, yet they are all served at the same time. If someone could enlighten me, I'd really appreciate it. Despite only handing Christopher an 18-year sentence, Judge Marlin stated that he believed the defendant would remain behind bars for many years to come. In response to hearing her mother's killer's sentence, Tracy Millington-Jones made the following statement. He's a very dangerous man and should never be released. He has robbed me and my sister of our mum and robbed my five-year-old daughter of a grandma. The lead officer on the inquiry, Detective Chief Superintendent Paul Johnston, said, Our investigation doesn't stop here. Even though Farrow has been sentenced to life imprisonment, it is vital we identify any other crimes he may have been involved with. You'll notice that 18 years from the year 2000 was 2018, four years ago. 
So is Christopher Farrow now a free man? Thankfully, no, he isn't. But it's not for want of trying on his part. Christopher first applied for parole in the summer of 2018, with a parole board hearing taking place on July 19th that year at HMP Hull. He was referred to the parole board by the Right Honourable David Gork, the then Secretary of State for Justice. The outcome of the parole meeting was that Christopher was granted his wish to be moved to an open prison with minimal supervision. This was effectively the first step in the process of one day releasing him from prison as a free man. A lengthy statement was released after the hearing, but to summarise, the parole board said the panel was not satisfied that Farrow was suitable for release, but recommended he be transferred to an open prison. The outcome came despite testimony made by Wendy's daughter Tracy. After driving 200 miles north from Essex to Hull to make a statement, Tracy said, I think he is a dangerous, dangerous man. People need to be reminded of what he has done, particularly people in Leeds and Wakefield, if he's going to move back there. Why should he have the right to freedom after what he has done? He has shown no remorse, right from committing this offence in 1994 up until the day he is going to be released. He has never said sorry. The cowardly Christopher chose not to attend that part of the hearing. Tracy went on to vent her frustrations at the parole board hearing itself by saying, The whole thing is a shambles. The local community would be living in terror if he was released. A pair of mum's shoes were never found, and to this day, I believe he hid them as a trophy for his next victim. Looking over my shoulder knowing he was no longer in prison would affect the life I have managed to build back up since 1994. I am sure that the feelings of dread and panic attacks would escalate. In response to Tracy's concerns, a Ministry of Justice spokesperson made the following statement. We appreciate that reading out a statement at a parole hearing can be upsetting for victims, which is why they have the option not to, and are given support when they do. We take the welfare of victims very seriously, and are carrying out a full review of the parole board rules to build on work already done to increase transparency and further support victims. Christopher Farrow was officially moved to an open prison in November 2018. Seven months later, in June 2019, a man named David Ackett came forward and revealed that his late wife Brenda suspected she was stalked by Christopher on January 19, 1994. That was just under three months to the day before he murdered Wendy Speaks. Brenda had told David how a man had knocked on their door while she was home alone and asked to use her phone. She later realised that the same man had been sitting close to her on her bus ride home from work that day. Nothing came of the incident after Brenda notified a neighbour of the situation. Christopher denied the attempted burglary charge in relation to Brenda Ackett and it was subsequently left on file with no further action taken. David said, When Wendy Speaks was murdered, we saw a photo fit on TV of the suspect. Brenda said, That's him, no doubt, and we rang the police. One of their neighbours was also able to identify Christopher on an ID parade. It makes you wonder how many unidentified victims Christopher may have. His MO was consistent and had varying levels of success. Perhaps Wendy was his first successful sexual assault and or murder victim. Or disturbingly, maybe she's the only one we know about. Christopher applied for parole again in December 2020 but was again denied his release. This time the parole board decided he was still too much of a risk to be released back into society. A document detailing the decision said, After considering the circumstances of his offending, 
the progress made while in custody and the other evidence presented at the hearing and in the dossier, the panel was not satisfied that Mr Farrow was suitable for release. He will be eligible for another parole review in due course. And that was the story of British murderer Christopher Farrow. Thanks again to Zoe Ward for suggesting that case. I've got two new reviews to read out this week. Thank you firstly, Apple Podcast user... Oh, I don't know how to say this. Hogo ho ho go VGJ, VGJ for leaving British murders a five-star rating and review. They said, right, where have you been hiding? Perfect attention to detail. Not too much, not too little. Great the way these podcasts are told. I have been hunting this style down for a while now. Excited to dive in. Super great host. In stark contrast to that, thank you also Apple Podcast user P.2Bears for leaving British Murders a 5 star rating and review. They said, I get it that your point is to be short and pithy, but any solid story time that's less than 25 minutes makes it hard to listen to because you have to get through the intro and exit on every single one. Keep the format, but give us a standard in 30 minutes at least per episode. I must admit that review did confuse me, as it had what I would call constructive criticism, yet it was a 5 star review, felt more like a 2 or 3 star review maybe. You're not the first person to have said that about the show's length, but as you know that is the style, that's the intention. Not that I have to justify myself to anyone, but please remember this isn't my full time job. I've only got so many spare hours in the week and to be honest, some of the cases I cover are so obscure that a 30 plus minute story just isn't possible. This episode is a perfect example. There's minimal background information available about Christopher to bulk out the story. Then again, another reviewer said, I put too much filler in, so I can't seem to win. Anyway, suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Podchaser, or by visiting BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. You can become a Patreon member to gain early access to ad-free episodes. I'm also going to start doing mini bonus episodes on there, or mini-sodes. Be like 5 to 10 minutes, even shorter than this, how dare I. But just like summarising cases that may not have the bulk to warrant being a full episode on them, I'm going to start that, I think either this week or next week. I've reached out to my existing Patreon members to see if they think this would be a good idea. They seem keen for it, so if you do want to access some exclusive content that you can only get in one place, then please consider joining the Patreon. If you want to donate on a one-off basis, you can do that on buymeacoffee.com. Links to Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee are on my website, britishmurders.com. I'd also like to shout out my latest Patreon subscribers, which is Laura Armstrong and Jeff Meaders. Please continue to email your case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll get a cheeky little shout out from me. But that's it for now. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.